At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear is gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. classic line from Dune. Learn it. Meditate on it. Live it. If you want to thrive in this V for Vendetta reality. We've dealt a plenty with overcoming fear and other lower emotions on the show in 2020. We'll continue on this episode as well as techniques to unleashing your Promethean aspect in what is a special show with a special guest. Attack fear, for when it is gone, there will only be left your authentic self. Eternity will then be waiting for you. Fear is the mind killer. Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. Stephen King once provided one of his secrets for writing horror. Give the reader a glimpse, a taste of danger and the unknown and then let their imagination construct the entire danger and unknown. Their own personal horror that spreads like a fucking virus through their consciousness until it, yes, it kills the mind. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. That is what the rulers of this age have done in 2020, in case you haven't noticed. They have created a collective horror novel and we must counter the only way possible, directly attacking the virus that is fear, filling our imagination with what is true and liberating by writing our own gospel and living our own myth. Fear is the mind killer. Or as Frank Herbert also said in Dune, most civilization is based on cowardice. It's so easy to civilize by teaching cowardice. You water down the standards which would lead to bravery. You restrain the will. You regulate the appetites. You fence in the horizons. 
You make a law for every movement. You deny the existence of chaos. You teach even the children to breathe slowly. You tame. Or as the second treatise of the great Seth says, And the senseless and blind ones are always senseless, always being slaves of law and earthly fear. But the end result, the true genius of the plan was the fear. Fear became the ultimate tool of this government and through it our politician was ultimately appointed to the newly created position of High Chancellor. The rest, as they say, is history. No more, my beloved true seekers, for you have arrived at the virtual Alexandria, once again to AM Bytenostical Radio. Welcome to the end of the world and the beginning of so many new inner worlds. We're running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. We're raging against heaven and storming the gates of hell for our misplaced childhoods and paradises lost. Fear is the mind killer. Those without swords can still die upon them. I fear neither death nor pain. What do you fear, my lady? A cage. All fear is, even when it curdles into anger or desire, is our inner yaldi-baldi lizard brain rejecting the idea we're gonna die and wanting to control every aspect of life. As children of Valis, we were never meant to be in control, but living in ecstasy for the life above life and embracing the existence of chaos and its ladders. We reject Saturn and his Babylon Khan to suppress our divine spark for a safe, unoriginal, and average existence in the Black Iron Prison. Who am I? That's the real question, isn't it? Who, who am I? Who are you? What other questions are there? What other questions are there, really? If you, you want to understand the universe, embrace the universe. The, the door to the universe is you. And I am Miguel Connor, your pompous of Gnosis and midwifer of contraband truths as we continue to serve Hermes and Sophia, the god of thieves and the goddess of smugglers. Thanks for being here. You no longer have to be in pain. You no longer have to worry about death. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. As mentioned, it is a special show, an almost dream-come-true interview for yours truly. Our astral guest is Damien Eccles, who will be discussing his new book, Angels and Archangels. The work is so useful for any seeker out there, from the exercises to Damien's beautiful, uplifting spiritual views. Here is a quote from Angels and Archangels. I often repeat the adage, where attention goes, energy flows. The universe is made of energy. We want our attention to support our growth and progress, not detract from it. When our minds are full of what we're doing right now, how we're feeling and what we're thinking in this moment, then we can be fully present and create a feedback loop that sustains us 
as opposed to sending our energy out into whatever random thought and fear happens to be crossing our minds. Life is a state of mind. And I will spend the rest of my life in a cage of fear. Get ready for a memorable interview. As I also said, it's a dream come true. More than 25 years in the making. I followed Damien's story from the beginning, when he was accused of being a satanic murderer, but not how you think. When he was sentenced to death as part of the West Memphis Three, I was an orthodox right-wing Catholic. I cheered his fate, darkly satisfied. I was so full of self-righteousness. If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. Yet somehow his plight wouldn't leave me. It stayed with me, nagged me, like a splinter under the skin of my orthodox right-wing Catholic construct. Like a shadow moving from deep within me. As the years went by, this construct crumbled, often in terrible moments of denial manifesting in alcoholism, depression, and even crime, paralleling the bogus case against Damien. I kept following his situation, my perspective on him shifting as my perspective on who I was shifted. I couldn't project anymore, you see. As Hemingway said, there is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. And in a sink, when Damien was released from death row, was when I was fully released from my old existence. I had been afraid, you see, and slowly let go of my want to control and just be, my authentic self facing eternity. And Damien's words, his message after leaving prison, was a gnosis that has carried me through so many challenges and tragedies. I can't thank Damien enough never will but I don't have to Damien taught me that we don't have to have heroes that we are all points of light in a dark universe on different stages of our journey through the spheres sharing our radiance when others need it and borrowing radiance when we feel lost we are all a vast constellation of wonder an infinite Indra's net Damien taught me that the greatest heroic act one can undertake is to inspire others and that each one of our experiences matters, that we are all shining crazy diamonds. When we exist to inspire in the ecstasy that is life above life, then the mind killer that is fear cannot touch us. Aren't you afraid? I would be, if it weren't for fire bright. What they value is the attempt, not the achievement or the ultimate result. They judge us by our intention, by our hearts. I remember watching a TV interview with him soon after he was out of prison. The host asked Damien how he could forgive those who robbed 18 years of his life, those who tortured him in solitary confinement. He answered that feeling resentment simply meant he was right back in his cell that his captors had won if he let them live rent-free inside his head. You see, resentment is just fear on napalm. 
that poison we take to harm others. Don't let anyone live rent-free inside your head. Turn your consciousness into that Stephen King personal whore. Don't let Trump or Biden or your ex or your parents or your old religion live one second inside your head, for that is a mind killer. Let your mind be the domain of the god of thieves and the goddess of smugglers, always bringing you that potential and freedom that is yours by birthright. That love. Don't let them. Damien taught me this, as have many other lights in my journey. Aeon Bide, I hope, has always been my way to inspire you. What kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? What difference has my life made to anyone? Damien and I will definitely talk about destroying fear and other useful tools to navigate these Gnostic times. As a bonus for AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon, as we could only do an hour because of scheduling issues, my friend Nate the Occult Fan and I talk a lot about the interview, defeating fear and magical living in general. And we get very personal and inspirational. Don't miss it. And yes, Finding Hermes is officially out, so contact me for more information if you haven't seen it. Let us do the interview with Damien Eccles. Fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is near insanity, Katar. Now do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We are all telling ourselves a story. This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, we definitely have the pleasure and the honor of having Damien Eccles to discuss his new book, Angels and Archangels, A Magician's Guide. Damien, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the pleasure is all mine. And again, uh, You've done a lot for my life, for my magical life, and I know the audience also follows your work, so it's going to be great sharing your new book. So, But uh, tell us, uh, Angels and Archangels, is this uh, the sequel to High Magic, a compliment? Or I know as, as a writer, sometimes publishers are like, you know, Mr. Writer, we can only do 64,000 or 60,000 words and we got to, we got to, and this, sometimes a lot of us writers have leftover material. So tell us about how this book came about. I guess in, in some ways you could consider it a sequel just because what I wanted to do with high magic, like when I first started getting into magic, like, you know, in your teens and your twenties and you're coming across some of the classical 
you know, what we now consider the classic texts of magic, like Israel Regardes, the Golden Dawn, you know, stuff like that. When you're first starting out, you know, I, I had a friend who described it. I thought it just, he articulated it perfectly. He said the first time he ever picked that book up and opened it, it was almost like trying to read an alien language. Like he had, <laughs> there's no kind of reference. You know, you don't have anything uh, within your experience or frame of reference or anything else that allows you to kind of figure out what the hell it is. It's like a really grueling process figuring some of this classic material out. So what I wanted to do with, with the first book on magic, High Magic, was sort of break those things down and make them as simple as I possibly could, uh, but without watering them down, you know, so, so that they still maintain their effectiveness. Things like the middle pillar and the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, things like that. Uh, so that was kind of what I wanted to do is take the very basic beginner's level material and, and make it as palatable and digestible as I could without watering it down. Then for, for angels and archangels, um, what I wanted to do was sort of take it up one step, you know, say, okay, if you like that, if you like what this did to you from doing these exercises, if, uh, you know, you're interested because you've seen the changes in your consciousness that, that these things bring about and you want to take it up to the next level and explore a little more, then here's the next set of, of rituals that you can spring off of. So it is kind of a sequel uh, in that it sort of takes everything to the next level. But I also wanted to include stuff that people could use, you know, just as easy and simple as possible, even if you had never done anything in magic before. And you didn't want to, you know, go into these involved practices like the, you know, invoking the 72 angels of the Shemha Mefarash, which is, you know, pretty high up there if you just you know you don't want to take it to that level but you're still interested in working with these intelligences i wanted to have stuff in there so that you could do that too yes and your book is very both of your books are very approachable uh they have your insights your views you talk about the history of magic and of course full of rituals many that are very approachable uh, many that I'm adopting, you can do it immediately without uh, too much pomp and circumstance. And so for the audience, Damon, what uh, you write, the high magic is, uh, well, you say magic is the art and practice of conscious evolution. Love that. You, then you say the first goal uh, for high magic is crossing the abyss. The second is what's traditionally called achieving the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel. I think most people might get the second, but what's, uh, what is crossing the abyss? Well, usually like if you're, if you're part of a traditional order or traditional lodge, and whenever I say traditional, I mean like, uh, an order that has like an initiatic lineage that goes back to, you know, previous time periods you know i don't mean like like just people who got together right now and decided hey let's start up a group and do magic i mean like the like traditional lineages that train you in a specific order the first that they they sort of separate um the levels of development that you go through and the levels of learning you go through into three different stages uh, you know, most people are familiar with the grade system that corresponds to the spheres on the tree of life. Right. But even those are broken down and they fall into one of three orders. Like in the first order, 
this is where you traditionally learn things like, uh, you know, the lesser and the lesser banishing and invoking of the pentagram, uh, the middle pillar, the lesser hexagram ritual, um, things like that. Uh, you're supposed to practice those things until you know them forward, backwards, and inside out, until they have become almost like a reflex to you. And one of the reasons is because I, the, the person who put it the most accurate or who described it the most articulate way that I've ever heard is Rudolf Steiner, uh, the guy who started off as a theosophist under H.P. Blavatsky and then went on to sort of create his own school. But he described how uh, basically, you know, how we have eyes and ears and, and sensory organs to allow us to perceive and interact with the physical world. We also have those organs like sensory organs and systems within our energy system or aura. I don't use that word a lot just because, you know, it's kind of sounds so loaded. flaky and new aging now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Loaded. That's a good way to describe it. But he describes how we have these sensory organs also within, you know, these more subtle systems in our body that are, you know, beyond the physical body. The thing is, most people never develop them. And he said he describes it as uh, the way, you know, if you didn't have eyes and ears, then this world would be an incredibly dark and empty and, and you know, just void place to you. That's the same way the higher levels of reality are to most people, just because they don't uh, they've never worked at like utilizing those other perceptions. So in the first order of magic, that's a big part of what you're doing. Not only are you learning all of these rituals that are, you know, sort of like formulas that you can apply to other things, higher rituals later on down the road. You know, it's almost like in the Karate Kid, whenever Mr. Miyagi is teaching him, he's telling him, wax the car, right. <laughs> you know, scrub the floor. And he doesn't realize he's actually learning something until down the road. That's sort of the same thing that's happening in magic. You're learning formula that you'll apply to higher things down the road, but you're also uh, like exercising those per those organs of perception on other levels of reality. So that's the first order. Uh, the second order is whenever you take everything you learned in the first order and then start applying it towards, uh, number one, practical magic. You know, like uh, most people, when they think of magic now, they only think of the manifestation aspect of things, which is like one of the, like probably the least important aspect of magic. But it is, it is something that you learn how to do is like apply these things for manifestation purposes. But the other thing you're doing is also just doing it for spiritual sustenance. Uh, when you're doing what I mean by spiritual sustenance is you are pulling in massive amounts of energy and then uh, basically absorbing it directly into your aura. It's like doing calisthenics for your aura. Uh, and, and one of the things also, like the peak of the second order is you're supposed to take everything you learned in the first order and apply it towards what we call attaining the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. And in traditional magic lineages, that that's sort of a code. You know, when people hear Holy Guardian Angel, it causes them to have these images of like the, the Catholic Church's right. version <laughs> of that. Like each person has this sort of entity a, a, a single individual entity that has been assigned to watch over them while they're alive. That is not at all uh, what we're talking about in, in magic. The HCA is sort of code 
for the egregore that is behind all of the Abrahamic religions, like uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. It is the egregore that goes all the way back to ancient Sumeria, that as it evolved through epochs and aeons and time periods, uh, people viewed in different ways. When you attain the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel, you have forged a link with this egregore that will allow you to... Um, the only way I can describe it is sort of start to download information, but it also has a side effect. Uh, you know, Crowley said that once you attain the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel, it almost immediately triggers a crossing into the third order. The, the abyss is what separates the second order from the third order. And, and crossing the abyss is what they refer to as, as the dissolution of the self. You know, like we have, um, we, normally, people think that they are the individual. They think they are the ego. They think they are the self. What, when that dissolves, when that disintegrates, and it can be an incredibly frightening process if you don't understand what's happening when you're going through it. Uh, but when the individual ego begins to dissolve, um, it's like, and this is where the abyss lies. The abyss is between individual egoic consciousness and uh, what we would call higher consciousness. And, and by higher consciousness, and I realize this is a long-winded answer, but what, you know, when we say, for example, God created the world in magic, that doesn't mean the same thing that it means in religion, when you use it in a religious context. So, you know, in a religious context, you look at it as if there is this deity that's creating something almost like an artist does. You know, like a painter creates a painting, or a sculptor creates a sculpture, and at the end of the process, whenever they're finished, the artist is still here, and the piece they've created is there. They're two separate things. Um, that's not what we're talking about in magic when we use that phrase. You know, in magic, when you hear the word God, it's like reference to, it's, it's shorthand for the energetic source from which all things arose. You know, it is, it is this infinite energy and consciousness that lies outside the boundaries of time and space. Uh, it has no borders, no boundaries, no qualities, no characteristics. It's just infinite. Uh, we can't, uh, the human mind cannot even grasp exactly what that means. Well, when we say that God created the world, the only way this infinite consciousness can ever experience change is by pouring itself into the dimensions of time and space. So it's not like it created the world and stayed separate. It became the world by pouring itself into time and space. It became us. That's what people are talking about when they say that we are God or we are this infinite consciousness. Part of what crossing the abyss entails is that you, you know, it's no longer a thing of belief or hope or faith. You have the direct first-hand experience, uh, realization that you are the consciousness which is looking out in the eyes of every man, woman, and child in this world. And that sort of, it really changes entirely, you know, to the very foundation of what you are. It changes the way you view and interact with reality. Wow, that was really well said. And yes, it certainly uh, 
echoes the the tree of life pouring forth from the Ein Sof. Yeah. And of course, the, the the Gnostic view and the Platonic view of the the mind, the one, just uh, emanating out into space or into time and space. So that's well yeah. said. And that's, uh, that's exactly what it's it's describing. Uh, once you cross the abyss, you know, you see, and, and that's what it is. Crossing the abyss refers to the very top three spheres on the tree of life of Kether, Bana, and Hakma. So whenever you cross the abyss, the first sphere that you're in would be Bana. And, and Crowley described it. He said that whoever enters this sphere, uh, sort of obtains the title of Nemo, which is Latin for no man, meaning that you no longer identify with that individual ego consciousness. Uh, from Bana, when you cross over to Hakma, Hakma was the great of Magus, and the work of the Magus, uh, you receive a word, and this word will be the, like the embodiment of everything that you are to teach. Oh, really well said. I love it. So, so this would definitely uh, tie in with uh, what I'm going to ask you again uh, in your book. Uh, angels and archangels, Damien, you say that the greatest and most profound words ever uttered in history of magic are from our mutual hero, Hermes Trismegistos, is as above, so below, as within, so without. Exactly. Yes. And that you know, it's one of those, explains everything you've said. <laughs> it, exactly. And it's one of those phrases, you know, when you hear that in the beginning, you think, oh, that's really simple. You know, that's not really that profound. <laughs> yeah. But it's one of those things that if you really meditate on it and, and you continue to learn for the rest of your life, those words take on deeper and deeper significance and meaning over time. It's like something that seems simple at first, but can actually take an entire lifetime to unpack. I would agree. It's also one of my favorite uh, sayings too. And but you were talking about connecting with the divine and the egregore. Love your ideas of the egregore, and I also think it's such a underused concept. But I think, and this is something that helps so many people because uh, in this 2020, people are so full of fear. But you say that the opposite of fear is actually faith. And uh, could you explain more about that? And then you even one part of your book, you said, how do I know I'm afraid? Well, just look at your posture and go from there. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when you're talking about faith, most people kind of confuse faith with faith with belief. You know, they think like the opposite of faith is not believing in something, you know, but, but usually what we're talking about in, in magic the way we use the word faith, it, it, the opposite of that would be more like fear. Because when you have faith in something, you know, it's like that phrase they have, uh, where attention goes, energy flows. So whenever you put your attention on something, you are feeding energy into it. You know, that's the reason, like, we use languages we don't understand when we're crafting talismans. Because if you just sit down and write in English or, or in your native tongue and say, for example, you just sign your name, it doesn't require any thought whatsoever. You barely put any attention into it. You do it almost as if it's reflex. However, if you have to sit down and sort of transliterate, you know, like figure out one letter at a time and, and then really focus on how you draw it because it's not something that you're used to doing on a daily basis it forces you to put a lot more attention on it, which also infuses a lot more energy into it. So 
So the reason that I say fear is the opposite of faith is because when you're having faith in something, you are feeding energy into what you want to manifest. However, when you are, you know, giving into fear, what you're doing is focusing on what you don't want, you know, what you don't want to manifest, what you don't want to have in your experience of reality. And the more you focus on it, the more energy you're feeding into it. You know, if you've ever noticed a lot of times, that's what worry is. You know, when we sit around just thinking about something that we're scared is going to happen over and over and over, we're continually feeding energy to it. That's really good advice. And another loaded word, which you deal with too, uh, we've talked the loaded words, God, our uh, faith, but the other one is prayer. And you write that prayer is very important. In fact, you talk about when you when you left prison, you couldn't recognize faces because you'd been in a solitary confinement for so long. So you, your mind had lost that ability of recognizing voices. And you had to go to a studio to do your first book. And you were, of course, gripped with a, a lot of worry. And you said prayer really helped you center yourself after you left prison. Yes. Yeah. Most, I think a lot of people, whenever they use the word prayer, and the reason that so many people get so disillusioned by it is because, you know, we're never really taught what prayer even is when we're a kid. We, we, we just sort of think it's like saying words inside your head, you know, like you're in this vacuum, this empty chamber, and you're just saying these words, and you're wondering, is anybody hearing this? Is this going anywhere? Is this having any kind of, you know, result? Uh, but whenever I got out, you know, like I, like you were just talking about, it was, it destroyed me in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I probably had a complete and absolute nervous breakdown whenever I walked out of prison, just because by the time I walked out, I'd been in solitary confinement for almost a decade. So I literally went from solitary confinement one day to the streets of Manhattan the next. And, you know, when I was in, I was, by the time I walked out, I was doing magic for eight hours a day. I was reading and studying constantly. You know, that, that was my life. It's what I dedicated my time to. Uh, it's what I was devoted to. It was, it was like what everything in my life sort of revolved around, uh, you know, almost like a, a monk or a priest or something. I lived my life doing these rituals. Whenever I got out, it was like something in me shattered. And I could not even read anymore. Like I would try to read a book and I would read the same page over and over and over. And I could not retain what I had read when I got to the bottom of the page. And I also went from doing magic about eight hours a day to not even being able to do it eight minutes in the outside world. I mean, it was almost like starting over from scratch. And it was really, really devastating because magic had been the thing that allowed me to cope uh, and even thrive in the most hellish environment. I thought, you know, I had reached a point where I thought everything will always be okay as long as I can do magic. And then whenever I got out, I couldn't do it anymore. So it was like the one thing that I thought would always make everything okay, I couldn't even do that. And, and I had to work my way back up to just, you know, like a few breathing exercises at a time or a visualization exercise, just just a couple of minutes at a time. It was almost like trying to, you know, go through physical rehabilitation to, you know, fix a limb that's shriveled up from, from being damaged in some way. That was, it really, really did feel like that. 
So I, I, at one point, I did an interview uh, with the woman who owns Sounds True, the publishing company. And after the interview, she said, would you like to do a book on magic with us? And I, you know, at that point, I could not read and I could not write, but I still said yes. Because one thing I learned whenever I got out was say yes to everything, even if you have no idea what you're doing, and then you can figure it out as you go along. You know, it's Love it. better to say, better to do that than, you know, look back on the situation in hindsight and wish you would have said Yeah, opportunity uh, only knocks once, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. So she says, well, since you're having all this, you know, trouble with reading and writing, why don't we go about this the opposite way that you would normally do a book? Why don't you come into the recording studio? Because you can obviously still speak. Why don't you just come into the recording studio and speak what you know? Tell us what you want to say, and then we'll transcribe it into a transcript and give that to you, and you can take that and shape it into a book. So, okay, when I went into the recording studio every day, I went in with no notes, with no idea what I was going to talk about when I went in, no idea where I was going to start or anything else. The only, it was, I felt almost like someone who is about to be in a car crash, you know, if you ever if you're driving and you hit ice and you feel your car start to skid and you see the guardrail coming towards you. Everything in slow motion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's what it was like. It was that level of fear. And I did the only thing that I could think to do, which was start doing invocations for the angels of Mercury. uh, Because, you know, the planetary energy of Mercury is all about like conveying ideas, communicating, being able to express things to other people in ways that they can grasp and understand, you know, this back and forth flow of energy between you and and someone else. I started, you know, doing these invocations of the angels of Mercury every day before I walked into the recording studio and I would just sit down, open my mouth and whatever came out, came out. And it was like, before I even realized that an entire week had passed and I had spoken a book into creation. And that really was what started the healing process for me. Once I got out, that was what's, what allowed me to begin working my way through like all the PTSD and everything else that I was having. Yeah, it's incredible. And again, you talk about this too in Angels and Archangels, but in prison too, you were able to develop so much compassion. You you write about this prison guard who was terrorizing you and other other people in death row. Uh, how you accepted that uh, you if you hadn't been in prison, you would have never discovered this magical system and really worked on your inner self. So it's incredible. Yes, yes, um, and it's you know it's one of those things where a lot of people think that I had like a really horrible life whenever they hear about you know that some of the stuff I went through and just being on death row and all that. But honestly, when I look back on it now, I see how, as crazy as it sounds, like nothing happened to me. Everything happened for me. It was like I got to do everything that I wanted to do in life due to this, what seemed like a horrible situation at the time. You know, it put me in a place where I was able to do magic for hours and hours a day and study for hours and hours a day instead of doing the things that most people have to do out here, like, you know, going to work and raising a family (laughs) and filing taxes and and all that kind of stuff. It really did uh, provide me with a monastery. So in a lot of ways, I am 
incredibly thankful for a lot of the stuff that I went through, even though at the time I didn't realize it. And looking back on it in hindsight, I realized how so much of it was incredibly beneficial. Yes, indeed. You got to do what the, the desert monks did or the Magi 2000 years ago or the Greek philosopher just, uh, 24 seven go on a journey. So it's incredible. So the, I guess the question would be, Damien, uh, if somebody asks you why, well, it's sort of a twofold question. Why work with angels and what exactly are angels and art angels? Uh, really, I've wrestled with how to articulate exactly what these things are in ways that people can understand. And I'll tell you the, the reason that I started working with them and the reason that I always recommend to other people that they start is, number one, just how incredibly effective they are. You know, when you start doing uh, these rituals that involve angels, I have never, ever encountered any other form of magic, meditation, energy work, or anything else which provided the same level of results that this kind of magic did. And, and, you know, once again, going back to Crowley, he said, let success be thy truth. So I always tell people, you know, and, and for me, for example, you know, when I was locked up, one of the main reasons they were trying to kill me, that they put me on death row, was they were saying that I was evil because I did magic. Like magic is satanic in sort of way. <laughs> so the way I looked at it as at, in the beginning, I didn't want anything to do with angels because I thought this is part and parcel of the system of the people who are trying to murder me. And I don't want anything to do with anything they've got going on. But if you want to do the traditional rituals that were handed down in ceremonial magic, you know, like the pangram ritual and the hexagram rituals and all of those, they were traditionally done with angelic and archangel intelligences. So I thought if I want to do exactly how this is supposed to be done and, and get the results that people talk about, then I have to do it exactly the way that they laid it out. So I started doing it and you know, like I say, I almost had this distaste in my mouth, or like an axe to grind against anything that remotely smacked of Christianity. Yeah, when I when I saw like how it was affecting me, the changes in consciousness and everything else that I was experiencing, I got over that really fast. I, I you know I didn't care anymore. Later on down the road, I would find out that these aren't even you know people have worked with these things since the dawn of human history. You know thousands and thousands of years before Christianity or Judaism or Islam or any of those religions would come to be, people were already working with these intelligences. They called them, in ancient Sumer, they used to call them jinn, D-J-I-N-N, and like the highest ones, the most powerful ones, they even called them gods, like Enlil and Enki and Inanna, uh, all of those. What they are, are the intelligences inherent within stars and constellations. Uh, you know, you can look all through the Bible and find all of these references to, to stars. You know, you'll, once you really start to look for them, it, you're kind of, it kind of, you kind of can't believe how much it's throughout the Bible and how you've never noticed it before. Uh, and all of these religions, you know, the Abrahamic religions are, they spring from magic. 
That was where they were born. Not only did religion, all Western religions stem from magic, but so did our science. Uh, you know, pretty much everything that early mankind figured out how to do, how what they learned, you know, math, astronomy, all of this came from watching the stars. And what I say whenever I'm talking about, like, all of these religions stemmed from the practice of magic, when you're looking at magic, you know, for example, this is one of the reasons why, well, I'll tell you, I started doing these, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly where to start the story. Uh, but one of the things that I found myself doing at a certain point was I, I met this man who told me that if you want to have beautiful, fine, amazing things in your life, then surround yourself with things that have those energies and that quality. So I would think, where in New York are the most beautiful, priceless, meaningful things located that I can go and surround myself with? And the answer was the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's, it's all of history in one building. So I started going there, and this is while I'm also studying, you know, the ancient Sumerian system of magic. But you find that, you know, in all of the figures like the jinn and the gods and the royal figures like the king, which, you know, ties in also, they used to call magic the royal science. It is the science of becoming a king, uh, the science of reclaiming sovereignty of your life. It's how you break the chain that binds you to the stars. You know, you, you are disrupting energies that are exerting influences on you that you don't even realize are exerting influences on you until you sever them. But whenever I go into this museum, you know, you're looking at all of these figures, like the highest, most divine figures all wore crowns that had bullhorns on them. And, and I started down this path of trying to figure out what does that mean? You know, why do these, these figures wear bullhorns? And if you do research, the only thing you really come up with is they say that it symbolizes divinity or kingship. And I would think, well, that's great, but why does it symbolize those things? You know, that seems like a pretty pedestrian animal to symbolize divinity or kingship. Right. Well, it, it's, it's because all of these religions are based on the stars. And, and what I mean by that is the procession of the equinoxes. You know, for example, we everybody knows that during the course of the year, the sun moves through the 12 constellations of the zodiac. It takes about a month to go through each one. Well, there's also a bigger cycle going on uh, that I wasn't aware of because I, I dropped out of school when I was in ninth grade, so I never learned about these things. But this bigger cycle is called the procession of the equinoxes. And, and this is the reason that all of these ancient cultures paid so much attention to the spring equinox. It's because... If you stand facing east at the time of the spring equinox, you will see the sun rise in the same sign in the, con in the same constellation for about 2,150 years. It changes signs about every 2,150 years. So at the time of ancient Sumer in, in Mesopotamia, when polytheism was the dominant religion in the world, if you would have stood facing east at the time of the spring equinox, you would have seen the sun rise in the sign of Taurus which is why they wore the bullhorns. Well, if you skip forward 2,150 years, uh, Judaism was starting to spread throughout the Western world. It was becoming the religion that was spreading like wildfire. Well, during that time period, 
if you would have stood facing east at the time of the spring equinox, for 2,150 years, you would have seen the sunrise in the sign of Aries, the ram, which is why, you know, they had all these rituals like the Jewish priest playing the ram's horn right, exactly. or the scapegoat ritual or, you know, when Abraham's getting ready to kill his son, God sends him a, a ram to sacrifice in its place. So Judaism was all about the time period of Aries. We'll skip ahead from that 2,150 years. And if you were to basically at the Chinese spring equinox, you would have seen the sun rising in the sign of Pisces, which is symbolized by two fish. This is the time when Christianity was spreading like wildfire throughout the Western world. It was becoming the new dominant religion. And this is why you see the fish symbolism all throughout, like when Jesus is feeding the multitudes, he feeds them with two fish, or whenever he, he calls his disciples fishers or men. You know, when you're reading about Jesus and the 12 disciples, you're, you're basically reading about the sun and the 12 constellations of the zodiac. The virgin is the constellation of Virgo. Uh, he even tells his disciples at one point, he says, I'm getting ready to leave you. And they say, well, what do we do whenever you leave us? He says, follow the man with the water pitcher into his house. Exactly. Well, in those days, Men did not carry water. That was seen as entirely women's work. However, Aquarius, which is where the sun would be rising for the next 2,150 years, is symbolized by a man holding a water pitcher. pitcher. So what he's telling them is from the age of Pisces, uh, the next uh, stage that we're going to go through will be the, the, uh, the time of Aquarius, which is where we're entering into right now. So basically what all this comes down to, what all of these religions are, every, a little over every 2,000 years, mankind receives a new, what we call dispensation. A dispensation means a way to understand and interact with divinity. So we are moving out of the dispensation of Christianity and into an entire new way of understanding and interacting with the source from which we all came. And I realize that is a long-ass answer, but it's really hard <laughs> to condense it. No, you know, it's it's a great answer, and uh, yeah, really great answer. But I guess I would say, um, what my next question, and this is again another great insight in your book, but you write that uh, when working with angels and archangels, I've come to realize that they don't carry out the task we charge them with just because we ask them to. They do it because they perceive the divine within us. So they're exactly. they're not our slaves. They're working to help us to free the light within us. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's like we are unconscious angels. We are divinity manifest, but we don't realize. It. We think we're just these lowly people. You know, and a lot of times it's because that's what we've been taught pretty much ever since we was born born by religion. You know, you're taught to grovel, like you're unworthy. And you're, you're begging this thing that's outside yourself for help, even though you don't deserve it because you're like this pitiful worm. That's not the view of magic at all. Remember a while ago how I was talking about divinity poured itself into the dimensions of time and space yes. and became us? That's the reason the angels obey us without question. When they look at you, when you invoke, when you go through the invocation process, invoking these angels and assign them a task perform they're not looking at it as if you the individual ego is talking to them all they see is divinity addressing them and that's why they go to fulfill it 
and go to do what they perceive as God giving them their marching orders. And at the same time, and you address this, and it's important, and it's something that all magicians struggle with or all seekers struggle with, and that's the idea of using the spiritual world for material purposes. And uh, again, uh, you and of course, you write that sometimes in prison, you had to use magic for material purposes to get you out of some bad situations. But at the end of the day, I love how you simply say you stick to the 90-10 rule. And there you have it. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I try to focus 90% of my spiritual practice, my practice of magic on spiritual sustenance, you know, like accomplishing the great work. The main thing that I always do magic for is, uh, you know, whenever I bring in as much energy as I possibly can and get ready to get ready to fire it off for a purpose, I'll say, let this, let this be for the purpose of me completing the great work within this lifetime. Let it come about in a way that brings harm to none and it's for the good of all. In no way let this reverse or bring on any curse. That's the main thing, just completion of the great work. Uh, but, you know, we all have times whenever we need something, you know, either we need healing because we're experiencing some sort of emotional or physical or mental trauma, or, you know, we just have trouble paying the, the light bill. And if, if you are dealing with those things, then it's really hard to concentrate on, you know, these higher lofty goals when you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from. And, you know, I always tell people, if you have kids, don't you want the best for your kids? And most people automatically say, yeah, of course. And I'd say, well, you are a child of divinity. Don't you think if you feel that way about your child, don't you think divinity feels that way about you? It doesn't want you to, to go through life suffering and, and living in lack. But at the same time, it doesn't want you to just wallow in, in blatant, pointless materialism either. So, so, you know, I always say 90% should probably be for spiritual development, 10% for fixing other aspects of your life that you want to bring into a life. However, you know, one of the things I also like to point out to people is the more you do focus on spiritual development, it seems like the less and less that you find in your life that you do need to do magic to manifest for. It's almost like things automatically start falling into place. Yeah, it's great advice. And so let me get your take on this. Obviously, our show deals a lot with Gnosticism and Hermeticism. And as you know, in Gnosticism, angels are not seen in a good light, whether they were called archons, uh, uh, whether it's the book of Enoch, which you quote in your own book, uh, the angels of Paul, the, 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 the thieving angels of Simon Magus. Do you see evil spirits or ontological evil out in the universe? Or what is your take, Damien? I think, I think we can only see something externally if we have it internally. I, you know, it's one of those things where I think if you see evil everywhere you look, you know, like the, the, like say the inquisitors from the Catholic church who they saw demons under every bush and rock and within every person and, and wanted to kill them. I think that the, it's, it's probably more likely that the issue is internal rather than external. Um, you know, that's something I've never really thought about a lot, uh, to be honest, but I think there probably are 
um, ways of getting trapped in the material aspects of the world. And, and to be honest, I think there probably have been, especially at earlier points in creation, there probably have been people who have misused uh, some of this uh, material for, uh, honestly, the enslavement of humanity, you know, to, to feed off the energy of people, have them working for things that are not uh, beneficial to them. And as a matter of fact, they're probably detrimental to them. Which is another one of the reasons why I think it's so important to do this work for ourselves, to kind of sever our connections to anything like that. Well said indeed. And you also write, Damien, that one of the goals to working with your holy guardian angel is to connect with your higher self. Uh, what would you say is, our, is that like that's our daemon, as they used to say in classic times, or our authentic self? How would you describe our higher self? I, I, this is one of those things that, again, um, there's it's there's so much to unpack there. Just because I think magic is happening when we're doing, you know, we exist on several different levels of reality simultaneously. You know, for example, we we exist in the hardcore physical world of Malkuth. You know, it's the flesh and blood body. Everything you can see, touch, taste, hear. Uh, you know, everything on the physical realm of reality. Uh, you go up a level from that and you've got like the etheric or astral or energetic level of reality. And this is where, you, you know, when you're doing magic, like external magic, anything from Qigong and Taoism to angel invocations, whatever it is, where you're using, you know, this external energy. Uh, go up a level and, and you're dealing with uh, the, what they call the mental level of reality. Uh, and this is where... Whenever I'm talking about the higher self, where it comes into play, where yes, when you're working with angels, you are there are aspects of them that are external, whether they be egregores that were created by man for a specific purpose, or whether they be these external entities that have existed long before humanity ever came on the scene. They're external things. However, we also they're they're mirrored inside us, you know, as above, so below, as within, so without. So while you're working with these these entities, intelligences, and energies on an external plane, you're also doing something internal. You know, keep in mind most of this, this these practices go back to a time when psychology and psychiatry would have been these people would have had no lens through which to view it or understand it. You know, if you started throwing around words like the id, the ego, the super ego. <laughs> They would have had no concept of what that meant. However, when you're what it calls, it's very close to what Jung called um, self-actualization, because the angels on this internal mental plane represent uh, the highest that we could possibly become by you know constantly invoking divine energies. They represent the aspect of what we could be if we rose to our highest potential. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the goetic entities, or like in Gnosticism, what they call archons, or uh, like what Christianity calls amos. Well, those represent, on the internal plane, they represent like the, the lowest, uh, first form, most reptilian part of our mind, you know, the animalistic aspects of our soul. 
our normal everyday functioning consciousness is a is between those two. So you've got the higher level of consciousness in, in angels, you've got the lower level in demons, and you've got the middle level in what we are every day. So part of what you're doing when you're doing these practices, you know, they call magic the union of opposites. You are marrying these angels and demons with your everyday conscious mind. You are combining your higher self, your lower self, and your everyday functional consciousness into one uh, one thing, one complete whole thing that's no longer split apart into all these subdivisions. Well said. And uh, I'd like to get into another loaded word since we're using them or explaining them. Your book does a great job and it's important to have to really understand these. But one uh, another loaded word is meditation and we all immediately mm-hmm. i do it too we think oh i gotta be the man in the mountain zen meditation for four hours a day i can't stand still for that long <laughs> but uh you uh yeah and uh you say that uh you quote michael greer who's also been on, on a guest and a brilliant mind when it comes to magic uh he says meditation is very important and you promote uh, something called prison cell meditation, which I am going to try this week. But could you share with the audience? And it's taken from Dion Fortune, right? Prison cell meditation. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. I can't remember which of her books. Uh, Dion Fortune was a member of the Golden Dawn. Um, and, and I can't remember exactly which one of her books it was in. I just remember coming across it at some point and it had, a pro, you know, the word meditation, like you said, we normally think it just means one thing, like sitting still, trying not to move, <laughs> your breath. But, you know, there's actually thousands of different forms of meditation. Uh, she gave this one where basically what you do is close your eyes and imagine that you are standing inside of a prison cell. Now, there's nothing in the cell. It's just concrete walls, concrete floor. On the very back wall that you're facing, there is a tiny slit of a window. The thing is, it's up so high that you can't even see out of it unless you walk back to the wall and reach up with both hands and and hook your fingertips over the ledge of the window and pull yourself up through sheer brute physical strength like you're doing a push-up, not a push-up, a chin-up or a pull-up. And... You're, you're supposed to try to feel as vividly as you possibly can, like the tactile sensation of how it would feel to have to pull yourself up like that, the way your muscles would strain and fire, and the way the concrete would feel as it scraped against your chest and the front of your legs while you're pulling yourself up. And as your eyes crest over the ledge of the window, you see the light from outside the window blaze forth through the window and consume everything. There's no you, there's no prison cell. It's all just obliterated in this flood of pure, brilliant, divine light that comes pouring through whenever your eyes crest over the edge. The second, when I first discovered that, one of the things it does is it really, really grounds you in the present moment. Because what I found for me is like every time I do that, like whenever the light floods in and blasts everything away, it's almost like you are immediately slammed back into your body. You know, you're grounded, you're feeling your feet, you're feeling your hands, you're here, you're present. 
And the more you do it, you know, it's not something you do just one time. You can do it like sometimes I've done it, especially if I'm on a plane going somewhere and, you know, you can't get up and do pentagram rituals or hexagram rituals or angel invocations. It's like the only thing you can do is sit there with your eyes closed. I will do this. And, you know, after you do it a few times, it's like you are calm, you are centered, you are focused, and you're ready to go about your day. You're ready to take on whatever goes next without being scattered all over the place. For me, it is, it's honestly one of the most profound and easy meditations that I've ever discovered. Yes, as I said, as I mentioned, Damon, Damon I'm going to do it this weekend for you audience. I would try it. There's uh, many more of these great exercises. And uh, another concept I want to talk to is that of, of awareness and being aware. Again, kind of a loaded word, perhaps, because everybody talks about it. But you have this great uh, passage or story in your book. Uh, and you talk about uh, the first time that Lori, your wife, came to visit you in prison. And this was the time where you sort of you had to deal with awareness of yourself. But you also realized that so much of you, even at that time, had been hijacked by your own ego. Could you tell more of the audience about this and the, the insights you got from that uh, incredible meeting, of course, with your wife? Well, you know, I, I think um, ego is one of those things that we in the West, especially, we kind of don't even really understand what it means. It's not part of our, it's only becoming part of our culture now through things like psychology and psychiatry. But uh, even then, those, those branches or, or fields of study don't use it in exactly the same word way that we use it in magic. You know, like when I was talking a while ago about how this infinite consciousness pours itself into the dimensions of time and space and becomes us, well, we don't perceive ourselves that way. Uh, you know, most people, unless they, you know, embark on a really strenuous, uh, you know, regimen to be able to see through this, uh, they view reality through this lens that we call duality, uh, dualism. You know, there's, there's me, I'm here, and there's everything else out there. So whenever we're talking about ego, that's what we're talking about. You know, it's not evil in and of itself. It's just this lens that we view reality through that makes that, that makes us believe that this dualistic experience is what's actually happening. When, when you're talking about things of magic like uh, seeing through ego or transcending ego, it means basically that you have you no longer view that as the hardcore physical reality. You realize that's not you. That's not what you are. But when you do magic, usually what happens over time is that takes place almost as a side effect, which is honestly, I think, one of the things that makes magic so much more effective for so many Westerners is, you know, whenever you're doing it in Eastern traditions, it's like they're really tackling the ego. You know, they're really going at it, like hammering away, and they call it polishing a mirror to try to see through it. And, and for some reason, for me, and I found that, you know, just through my own conversations with people, that for a lot of Westerners, it tends to be the same way. Like, it's almost like we're beating our head against the wall when we do that. For me, when you're doing magic, what happens is, you know, they say that you're supposed to rid yourself of the lust for results. 
Like, don't focus on the outcome. Don't focus on getting through the ritual. Just put your mind completely and absolutely on what you are doing while you're doing the ritual without any, any lust for anything that's going to come from it. What happened to me was I can remember, you know, like I had a Zen master that would travel back and forth from Japan to visit me to the at the prison and had been teaching me Zen meditation. And I felt like after about three years of doing it for hours a day, I just felt like I am not making the progress here that I want to be making. So I decided I'm going to stop doing this and just go back to doing magic. But this time I'm going to approach magic with the same level of discipline and commitment and dedication that I would approach it then with before. When I started doing that, I would say I was probably about three months into the practice whenever one day, you know, you're, when you're only allowed to have one visitor a week. So, so my wife would come to see me once a week. And I can remember when she came to see me uh, one time, I was sitting on the edge of my bed and I reached out to put my shoes on. And it was like an atomic bomb went off in my head because I realized for the very first time in my entire life, I am actually in the present moment. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm not thinking about the past. Yeah, but of course, you know, the second you realize that and start thinking about it, it's shattered and you're right back <laughs> yeah. into conceptual thinking. But it was, the, it was using magic that allowed me for the very first time to experience the present moment, which is the only thing you can experience whenever you're not viewing the world through the lens of ego. When you're viewing the world through the lens of ego, it's always either going to be projecting into the future or looking back on the past, one or the other. Ego cannot survive in the present moment. So it was like, you know, magic allowed me almost as a side effect without even, you know, straining for it to experience what I had been trying so hard to experience in Zen and had never quite obtained. Incredible. And um, you're something, another thing that caught my attention is your experiences with the, with the entity called en Enil, the Sumerian God. Would you say that he is some sort of egregore that has chosen you across time and space? And he is your connection to this great beyond and, and this great past, as you say, of magic and different changing empires and times? Um, I think it's, you know, Crowley said at one point that no man may know the name by which another man addresses God or the ritual that will allow him to do so. I think like me, uh, you know, we were talking about the HGA, the Holy Guardian Angel, and how, it, how it's this Egregore that began in like ancient Sumer and then went through this evolution as it passed through, you know, Judaism and Christianity and Islam and, and you know, even in, in today, our modern understanding of God derived from this concept that began in ancient Sumer. But I, that's the egregore of the HGA. Whenever you do make the connection with it, it will give you a name and an image specifically for you that will allow you to connect with it uh, instantaneously. You know, to, to first begin forming a connection, most people do it through uh, like the most, the most famous 
uh, book on, on magic is probably the book of Abramo and the mage, the sacred book of Abramo and the mage. Right. And it's all about, it's, it takes you about 18 months and it's a brutal process. You know, during these 18 months, you're working up to, uh, every single day focusing more and more and more of your concentration on reaching this entity, this intelligence. When I did finally reach it, the, the name that it gave me to invoke it by was in will, which was, you know, I had never heard this word. It did not mean anything to me, but whenever I went through this experience, it was something so profound. It shook me to my core. It changed my life forever when I received this name, but I didn't even know what it meant, but it, it jarred me enough where it did not even occur to me for several days afterwards, Google it. So when I, when it finally hit me that, why don't you start researching it and seeing what it is? It turns out that it was, it literally means Lord of heaven in ancient Sumer. And they said that in will, you know, we're talking about these intelligences, these angels. They said that in will was the one among them who shined so brightly that even the others could not look upon. Yes, incredible. I think mine, uh, Damien, was uh, an Abra Abraxas was the being that talked to me many years ago. Although these days I am more with Hermes as uh, the times and the energies change. So, yes, uh, I hope everybody else can find their guardian angel, their Damien, and uh, it's quite an adventure. So, But we are at the end of our interview, an incredible interview for the audience. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, I, I usually am active on three sources. You can find me on Instagram under just my name at Damien Eccles, D-A-M-I-E-N-E-C-H-O-L-S. Uh, the same on Twitter. Um, but by far the thing I do most is Patreon. Uh, and you can find me on my name, by my name on there also. That's where, uh, you know, a lot of times in social media, people just want to know the surface stuff about magic. Uh, Patreon is where I try to go really, really in depth and, and to the best of my ability, pass on what I've learned to people who want. Mm, very cool. So you actually like you, you teach them and, and through your Patreon. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good deal. Well, yes, we are at the end. Uh, really appreciate it. Audience. It's a great book. Uh, so much more that will really make your life better. And Damien's, all his work and his story has made my life much better. So, Damien, I'd really like to thank you for uh, coming on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. I want to thank you for having me and, and just for helping to get the word out. And I really appreciate you doing that. The honor and the pleasure is all mine. So thank you very much. And please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. And you, too. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. Our interview with Damien Eccles on his new book, Angels and Archangels. The man is an endless well of inspiration. And guess what? So are you if you just stop denying your potential. As mentioned in the intro, we could only do an hour due to scheduling issues. Summers are always harder for interviews, even during a pandemic. But I get it done. So as a bonus for AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon, my dear friend, Nate the Occult Fan, 
and I talk a lot about the interview, defeating fear, and magical living in general. And we get very personal and inspirational. Don't miss it, and don't miss some other incredible interviews coming the rest of the year. We will defeat the mind virus that is fear, together. So become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon to continue growing this red pill cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. Membership includes full access to the Arches with more than 14 years of high-quality interviews. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel where past guests like Lawrence Caruana, Scott Smith, Edward Pandemonium, Joanna Cuyava, Tim Freak, and Teresa Duke hang out there. Part of some mind-expanding continual conversations. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. I have an Amazon wish list as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Don't forget me books like Voices of Gnosticism or Other Voices of Gnosticism. The show has grown to the point advertisers want to appear, but they're rejected as I only work for you and only you. You can do so many wonders, I just know it, and are so full of potential and the ability to defeat any mind killers in 2020 or beyond. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.